0: Hey everyone, thanks so much for checking out episode 51 of the Scary Stuff Podcast. Before we get started on our movie review, just a little bit of product placement. Just wanted to mention again that our coffee is currently on sale with Rootless Coffee Company for the month of September 2022. So you can go to rootlesscoffee.com, so that's rootlesscoffe dot com, and then there's a page there for collaborations, and when you go there, you'll see our coffee label there, listed as Scary Stuff Podcast. So that'll be on sale until September 30th of 2022, so get your orders in now. And thank you so much for the support, and we hope you enjoyed this review of Come True with special guest Daniel Krauss on this episode of Scary Stuff. Hello, 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 and welcome to a new episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and joined by co-host Nick Leamy. Hey, everybody. And Jacob James goldstein Well, let's wake up. Yeah, let's... Boy, howdy, this is going to be an interesting movie to talk about. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) particularly given some stuff that's come up on the pod in the past. So as you clicked on this episode header in your podcast list, you know that we are reviewing Come True from writer, director, and a bunch of other stuff Uh, Anthony Scott Burns. So to kind of touch on why we're doing this real quick. (laughs) And so our initial plan was to do this was going to be a button basically on the end of our Nightmare on Elm Street series. We knew we were doing been working our way through the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And we thought, all right, well, once we do all of those, we're not going to do Freddy versus Jason. Like we mentioned, we're going to hold off on that. So instead we'll do there's so many other Dream-centric horror movies out there, so we'll do another one and one that kind of takes a different approach. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're starting already, so we'll find one that takes kind of a different approach, and we'll do that, and that'll kind of be a fun button. And we were talking about come true a lot. There were some other candidates, but so we were going to do it at the end of the Elm Street stuff. And for scheduling, this one kind of worked out that we could do it first. So we're doing it after we've done kind of at what we called the Elm Street Prime movies. So after this, we're going to be doing New Nightmare and the remake. So. We haven't forgotten about them. They are coming. We've just got some other stuff that worked out first for scheduling reasons, but those are coming.
1: So you ever see the movie The Ref with uh, Dennis Leary? Oh, yeah. There's a line in it where the guy who plays Santa is getting fed a bunch of cookies. And he, he says, you know, at one point, the kids, you know, I more cookies. Like enough with the cookies, kids. <laughs> That's about how I feel. <laughs> enough with the dreams, guys. <laughs> Although I, I, this movie is one, and we'll get into it, but I, I absolutely should not like and absolutely adore.
2: It's because it's more of an art piece than a dream.
1: But it's still a dream, maybe.
0: <laughs> All right, so before we get into yeah. this, we're starting already. So again, as always, we are a full spoiler podcast, and we're probably going to spoil it pretty quick in this We're already discussion.
2: dead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm gonna have to record a spoiler bumper and post to precede the spoiler bumper I'm reading in real time. Our our introduction for this
1: episode is just gonna be Eric fucking going, listen, you know, god damn it. I just it it we spoil everything in the first 30 seconds because these guys can't keep their fucking mouths shut.
2: Here's some theme music, let's go. That's probably gonna be it. Yo, dog, I heard you like bumpers. So I got a bumper in your bumper so you can bumper while you bumper. <laughs> <laughs> we're layering exhibit Ren sleep yeah. So, so yeah before we get
0: too far into it this is going to be a full spoiler chat so if you haven't seen the movie go see it and yeah let's just get right into it because we have a fabulous guest for this one it's on Hulu you can watch it on Hulu yes currently as of this recording it's available on Hulu so check it out and then come on back I am very excited to bring on our next guest. He is the author of the books Scowler, Blood Sugar, Bent Heavens, They Threw Us Away, and the newly released The Ghost That Ate Us from Raw Dog Screaming Press. He collaborated with Guillermo del Toro on the novel Troll Hunter and Shape of Water. He completed George Romero's unfinished novel, The Living Dead, and alongside Dr. Sharon Moalam, he's the co-writer of the upcoming novel Wrath. And he's the writer of a comic we're very fond of here at the pod, which is the autumnal from Vault, Woo. which I say as I wear my Comfort Knots t-shirt. Wow. So please join me in welcoming Daniel Krauss. Yay! yay. Oh, welcome.
3: That was a very Muppet sounding yay. <laughs> they always
2: are. <laughs> I'm very much a Muppet. <laughs> we we'll are probably gonna end up
1: talking about Fraggles at some point, so it'll, which is apt, it'll come
0: yeah. up. Just more clapping and less arms flailing. But yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: How
3: are you, Daniel? Well, I'm doing great. Any any day I get to talk about Come True is a good day.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for coming on to chat about this with us. We You had tweeted about this movie. It was right around the time that Jake and I saw it. Because, mm-hmm. Nick, I don't think you saw it until we decided to do it for this, until you're prepping for the episode, right? Correct. But yeah, Jake and I saw it last year, and you had tweeted about it pretty much, I think it was like the same day I saw it. And so I made a note. I was like, oh, it'd be cool. Whenever we get to Come True, we'll see if Daniel wants to come on the pod. So this was absolutely wonderful timing so thank you for doing this
3: yeah again it's my pleasure
1: and it you know i one of my noted things is i don't tend to like dream sequences in movies
2: really
3: (laughs) so
1: we've spent most of the year talking about movies featuring dream sequences so i think at some point these guys are just doing it on purpose but i i adore this film
3: well that's a really interesting way to start because i generally hate dream sequences
1: Ah, god bless (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, particularly in books and movies, it, I, it, at least there's a sort of abstract kind of visual art to it, maybe. But when I come across a dream sequence in a book, I just want to throw the book across the room. I just have, <laughs> I have no investment in it. Nothing uh, important can happen.
2: But I mean, immediate spoiler, that's the entire movie! <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, I mean, well, this, well, we, can, well we can talk maybe. about that. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not, we're not 100% sure on that.
1: I'm with you completely on that. Dream sequences in books just make me furious.
3: Yeah, I, I feel like there's no stakes, which makes this movie. I mean, anytime a movie or a book or a piece of art can do what I hate and I love it, then I love it even more because it's just like it has conquered my uh, whatever I don't like. You know, it has, it has <laughs> surmounted that. So I, I love it all the same. And. Tabling for a second the sort of ending scene, I feel like this is one of the best examples of dreams I've ever seen. Like, they really feel like dreams in a great way. Like, you know, our dreams probably don't look exactly like that. But they they sort of have this weird moving forward progression that just somehow feels right for a dream, you know, and it feels nonsensical in the right kind of way. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently it's
0: when when I saw the movie the the first time I had the same thought, which I thought the the visual representation of the kind of the on rails effect of the, just mm-hmm. the constant plunging forward, a have a v- great visual execution for just you know the constant escalation of dread because no matter what you know you know it's going to end with a button right. of some kind. There's going to be something significant at the end of the you know the other end of that railway once it gets rolling, and also captures that. That sense of dread and sense of inevitability that often comes with nightmares, which is, you know, if you're trying to get away from something in the back of your head in the dream, you have the knowledge that no matter what, it's going to end poorly. That there's this sense of inevitability and, you know, driving towards this awful end. And I said, wow, what a great way to capture that visually. And apparently it's a very consistent thing for the director, um, Anthony Scott Burns, where he said, yeah, most of my dreams are like this. (laughs) It's like just kind of that on rails Just always kind of moving forward.
1: I've had dreams like that. Like these those were very evocative of dreams that I've had. You know, when I compare it to like the Freddy movies we've been watching for previous episodes. You know, I've never had a dream where I was, you know, karate fighting an invisible adversary, but I've had dreams, you know, abstract, weird, progressive dreams like this. So it it clicked with me. And to talk about where we, we started a little bit, I had a similar reaction to this when I movie was called Come True, and Eric had mentioned it, and it looked good, but it also was entirely based around dreams, which is normally something I will just be like, all right. In this case, I had I had liked Our House quite a bit, which was Anthony Scott Burns' previous feature, and absolutely adored Father's Day in the holiday. Oh, anthology. hell yeah. yeah.
0: I didn't realize you'd seen Our House. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I watched it as part of the prep for this.
1: Uh, well, I had just watched it. Like it was just a random thing I had watched, so it wasn't part of the prep for this, but it was something I'd seen and i i I didn't love it. I liked it a lot, I liked a lot of the ideas and the way he did things it it felt it reminded me when I watched it of Ouija two okay it just you know the the sort of haunted house basement type stuff that happens in our house it's just kind of a similar vibe, but yeah. it <laughs> they're not similar movies they were just evocative of it no 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 me. no
0: yeah. our house is interesting uh for anyone who hasn't seen it i would say if, if you really like come true and you want to see the rest of anthony scott burns's stuff it's the feature he did before this but he's been very open about the fact that he he basically walked out on the movie yeah in post because it's you know he shot the movie and from what i gather the the filming process went he was relatively content with but when he got into Post-production, the producers had very much a very different vision, and he very much didn't feel like fighting the tide on the editing process, so he just basically walked away from it. So the end result, in terms of how the movie's cut together, is not how he envisioned it.
3: Well, I think this is the best rejoinder to walking away from a movie as you can have. Yes. It's sort of like the best response to a book is writing sort of the next book. This is one of those, and I'm going to be hyperbolic about this movie because I feel hyperbolic about it. But I feel like this is one of those moments where you see someone who's done a couple things before and then all of a sudden does that thing where they become a major artist and just everything falls together. Yeah. In, in my eyes, this is a perfect movie. Like it's just every piece of it fits together and works for me. It, it feels like a continual... Uh, From start to finish, work of consistent, persistent art uh, in color, in sound, in performance, in movement. It just feels like a single musical movement. And part of that might just be because the music is wall to wall. Like it never stops. And that almost makes it not a musical, but like something that feels like a piece of music. Which of course, you know, makes sense given that the director is also an incredible musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, who goes by Pilot Priest. is DJ name. So I, I just absolutely adore everything about this. It really
2: is. I, I was watching the film, and it felt less like a movie and more of a art gallery in motion to some degree. Mm-hmm. And it really is 100% Anthony Scott Burns' vision because looking at the credits, he wrote it, edited it, directed it, handled the cinematography, did the music, and the visual effects lead. I mean, like, top to bottom, this is like he had this baby in his brain, and he was just like, I want this to exist in the world, and he did so beautifully. Like, it's absolutely gorgeous, and it all flows so well.
3: It's a great case for giving a director complete power absolutely now of course this can you know it can it can go wrong (laughs) but it makes me think of like the early work of aronofsky or something where it was so distinct thinking about like pie or something like that where you just say all right this person needs to be given resources and let alone to make some uncompromising stuff and as it so happens burns's movies aren't Bizarro art objects, really. Like they are fairly, I think, watchable to a ordinary audience. I don't think the average, you know, suburban family viewer will like it as much as I do, but it wouldn't like alienate them. It's not like something way far off the edge, like a Southland Tales or something. It just doesn't, <laughs> it's just really discordant. And yeah, speaking of you know,
0: somebody who makes a movie and then gets more ambitious with the, getting more resources for their next feature. Yeah, man, Southland Tales.
1: Yeah, no, this this definitely functions at a, at a very basic horror movie level through it, and I I like I don't think it would be alien. I it might be a little slow, I guess, for people who who like the uh, you know the more jump scare heavy like Conjuring type
3: stuff.
2: It, it, it's more introspective.
3: Yeah, that's good. that's another good word for it. What it's lacking that a lot of you know, more mainstream movies have is it's it's sort of lacking, and I think it subverts this in a way that we can talk about. But ostensibly, it seems to be lacking a villain. Yes, like it has this sort of figure, but the figure doesn't do anything; it just looms there, mm. uh, except for potentially one scene, which we can talk about. And so, the, either has no villain, which is interesting, or the villain is Riff, and that's he's definitely the villain. that's that's something that's really he's a really interesting villain yes that i think is so so smartly and subtly done
2: this is my one major complaint with the film is that you have to admit that when you have any film that portrays a stalker as successfully getting the girl it's not your best move <laughs> in, a, in a narrative choice, in my
3: opinion, <laughs> but that aside, I, I did like the film. <laughs> I mean, I imagine that element of the plot is the most controversial, but I think it's one of the, the braver parts of the movie too.
0: Yeah, I thought it was absolutely deliberate because I had the same thought watching when you see it the first time. Is is this going to be as you know, projective wish fulfillly as it seems like it's going? in terms of, you know, girl of the dreams and, and the guy who's, you know, overtly stalking her. But it, it's so overt that by the time it gets to point, I said, oh yeah, this is absolutely deliberate and it's absolutely not supposed to be. Because there's also the line where he says, you know, they're together in the car and he says, you're smart for your age. Ugh, and she laughs yeah. and she says, I'm only 18. And he doesn't have like a quip, he just goes, <clears throat> and like so uncomfortably. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah that's, what's, that's what makes him such a great, antagonist is that he doesn't feel like an antagonist but there's that after she says she's 18 there's like that beat where he just doesn't say something for a second
2: he's he's at least 25 like if he's lucky
3: (laughs) (laughs) i I would think yeah i mean it's impossible to say how old he is but he does seem to be near the top of this experiment so he's got to be you know he can't be too young
2: Nope, he's, he's at, at best grad school, but like late grad school, working on his doctorate. <laughs> well, there's also the chance that she's
3: 38, too, so... She yes. could
2: be 38, <laughs> <laughs> technically.
3: <yes. laughs> That's a really interesting point, too, though. Because of the last shot in the movie, it's not clear if she's 18 or 38. But but anyway, to get back to Riff for one second, I think um he's such a... I, I mean... There's the age thing, of course, but also he's just from the jump, he's just uh doing everything wrong as a scientist, yep, like he's getting so. <laughs> involved with her instantly. And he's taking advantage of somebody who, even if she were uh, an appropriate age, is out of her mind with uh sleep deprivation and fear and doesn't have a home. I mean, she's an extremely vulnerable character, mm-hmm. and it's very. It seems pretty clear to me on the rewatch that he is just a really cleverly drawn villain that does that thing that so few movies and, and books are willing to do, which is to make the villain put him in that gray area where, for a lot, for at least parts of the picture, you're you're kind of with him. You know, there's points where you're like, okay, well, he screwed up, and now he's trying to do the right thing here in this point or this part. It refuses to make him a hundred percent. Complete psychotic, which makes him all the more effective. I think is a bad.
2: Well, fan. he can't be psychotic because, uh, no inherently the entire film is her subconscious dream self, and so is it, what though? she has cre- Shut up. Well, so what she has created.
0: <laughs> We're starting early on <laughs> the arguments
2: on this. One. What she has created is this sort of image of the bad boy within bounds for herself. Like yeah. this is as far right. as she would allow. A villain she could be with to go. You know, it's an argument to take. You know, it's it's okay if he's stalkerish if he's not obsessive. It's okay that he's a little too old if she's okay with it and she's old enough technically to make her own decisions as an adult. You know, these are choices she's making, even though it's still creepy as hell.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She also at one point lays out his entire existence in one monologue, and you know, the fact that he can get up from that is still impressive. Because she hits him with a couple of body blows in that little that little scene, and they're all true.
3: And then there's that weird part where, you know, like for a while he's watching her sleep, which is, you know, just inherently one of the creepiest things you can do. Yep. <laughs> but then there's the part where it, it's flipped, and she's watching him sleep and watching his dreams. Yep. And it's kind of turned the table in a weird kind of way. I, I This movie leaves you wonderfully with a lot of questions. It, that that's another thing that's so perfect about it. Is it, see, it answers enough that it's really satisfying, but leaves enough open that you want to solve the puzzle, at least. Mm-hmm. But it's not like a complete house of mirrors where it's just like, you're just completely lost the entire time. And that's supposed to be the fun. It's, it's better than that. It's got a real sense and shape to it.
1: So one thing I'd say about this is that having watched it the first time, And I I even took notes on it the first time I watched it, knowing we'd eventually do it on the podcast, because it's a movie I should have absolutely loathed because of the last shot. The last shot, and this is a complete spoiler, is all this stuff happens. And she sees she gets a message on her cell phone that says, functionally, we've been trying to contact you. You've been in a coma for 20 years. Please wake up. Now, most movies which tell you at the end, oh, it was all a dream. I would, you know, take out of my DVD player, snap in half and mail to somebody in anger (laughs) identity being one of the, the big culprits of this.
0: There it is
1: (laughs) that I movie I should love and hated because of what it did. And I realized at the end of this one, that I absolutely adored this film and didn't mind that ending. And then I got to thinking about it a little bit. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Is the whole thing that is part of it. That is the whole thing. You know, are we entirely there? I mean, So I had to kind of sit back and think a little bit about why I like this so much, given that it broke my most cardinal sin in in all (laughs) films.
3: I kind of agree. I'm not sure that the whole thing is a dream. I think it's possible that somewhere around the time that she has sex with him, there's a part there where he stands up and he kind of stands back and he looks like the persona. Like he's just this dark figure again. Yeah. And she has... Does he, she have a seizure at that point?
0: Yeah. That is also, I think, the the only time the figures manifest outside of a dream.
3: So I've, I I kind of feel like maybe that's the point where she goes to the coma. And so everything up till then has been real. And then from that, she goes into a coma. And so then everything else, like the, the kind of coda from there, is 20 years in, in the coma.
2: See, I, I felt the, personally, uh, that's definitely a, a viable theory. Uh, my theory was the entire thing is dream coma. And there's certain things that I feel even from the beginning that support that to some degree, like the nondescript problematic home she's running from. Like it's never actually defined. It's just she starts sleeping in the park and is able to sneak into the home every so often. And it's clearly running from her mother. But at the same time, her mom, you know, there's no clear villain there there's no clear obvious issue like you can fill in the gaps obviously and mm-hmm. do so to further support a, a later narrative of going to a coma but it felt almost like generic avoidance something you might have in the dream where it's like i was avoiding that place why well i don't know it's just well, you know, I, what this I, was.
3: I do think that's a, a, a legit read too because i had the same thought that there is something so odd about how that her parents are dealt with it almost the way that there's no dialogue and no dealing with it almost felt like Bruce willis sixth sense like yep like they yep, were yep. Like, they were like really avoiding any kind of interaction for a purpose.
2: also I also took it as a representation of her actual life at that moment. like her mom being unable to reach her, her being distant from her mom like that's almost a representation of the coma. like there is a distance between them that is undefined and unbreachable you know, that keeps them apart. And it's something she doesn't know how to deal with. So she, that, that's how to come out of it. And her, as much as her mom tries to reach her.
1: A, a lot of what I read, a lot of theories, people, and there's a, there's a fair amount of theories out there, if you go looking, were that the lack of the mom, but the mom calling. Mm-hmm. It means what she would, something happened with maybe an accident with the mom. And that's why she's in the coma. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that is a, a popular one.
3: I'd have to watch it a third time to really pay attention to all the phone calls. Yeah. But yeah, I wonder if every time she gets a phone call, that's someone trying to penetrate the coma. The mom. That was my read.
0: Yeah. Mom is trying
3: to sit by the bed and call her, but she doesn't answer. And finally something at the very end comes through. She answers her phone. Does she actually answer her phone for Zoe or does she just do text
2: messages?
0: She answers it for, for Zoe at one point early. I believe I made notes of the call. Uh, first, Phone instance is early. It's when she wakes up in the playground, checks the time, and it's seven Second instance, cell phone, is she gets a text while she's sleeping in the school library. Third instance is her mother calling the morning after the first sleep session, and she doesn't answer. And then what was the next?
3: Uh, well, she, she, she answers the phone in the field. Okay.
0: Yes. No, she doesn't talk to anybody. Yeah, because it's, it's, she...
3: He answers yeah. the phone in the field. The,
0: the climactic one is when it goes off in the laundromat and she answers and it's Zoe, but sh- there's no audio. And that's when there's the, the strobe light sequence. And that's when she loses the phone. That's when she loses the phone.
2: Now the yeah. phone could very easily be a representation of her connection to the real world. Like people trying to get to her and her the being not actually responding.
3: Yeah. When her phone gets stolen, there's some break there. And this is one of my questions, is that the woman in the laundromat says very clearly, Your phone was stolen by the boys. Yes. The blind woman.
1: Yep. Who says that.
3: Yeah, right. And then uh, the boys, whoever they are, and I have some theories on that, uh, plants it in the field, right? And then Riff answers. And then when he answers, Sarah appears to come out of her dream. And so you wonder, was, was she supposed to answer that call instead of him? Was she supposed to pick up that phone and then she would come out of the coma? Instead, something else happens.
2: I almost feel like that, like you know, the coma in the coma that she's basically in, in my theory, is her being lost. That's them losing her. She's going even deeper and yeah. losing herself even to her own consciousness, and that and that may
1: be what the demons
2: are. Well, maybe. And then the phone being answered is her reestablishing at least some base connection to reality, and that's why she snaps out of it.
3: I wonder if there's any read. I'd have to watch the movie again. If there's any read that could interpret the dark figures, particularly when she sees so many of them at the end as like not being demons, but like being a, a hospital staff in some way.
2: I thought about that. Ooh, it's very Jacob's ladder. Yeah. right. <laughs> find,
1: Cause a lot of that, you know, we see him, it's always the people in the bed looking in the corner. And I know that that's also a sleep paralysis thing and mm-hmm. something that that's real and reported, but when she starts seeing all of them and she sees them in the progressive dreams, and then there's, there's the one where she sees that face very clearly at one point at the very end. At the
3: very end, yeah.
1: It made me think that they were doctors or observers or something like that, at least in some fashion.
3: Well, I was going to say, do you, I have a theory on the boys, like who the boys are that take her phone. And I haven't really thought this through, but there's this scene where we're in the sleep study. It's one of the few scenes that, that kind of leaves the main character, leaves Sarah and it's there's the two young men who are in the sleep study mm-hmm. and they're in their beds they're in the same room and the and the, the persona comes in and they're both freaking out and then one of the techs comes in to help reestablish and then from that moment we never see if I'm incorrect tell me but we never see any of those three characters ever again that one tech who goes in there vanishes from the film oh those two young men who are uh, in those beds are never spoken of again.
2: It's true. So wow. I
3: wonder if somehow those are the boys who are have been sucked into this out of the coma or dream world or however literal or figurative you mm. want to take it, and that's who is now trying to help her in some way because they're in the same boat in some way. That she I haven't completely thought of that. Yeah, it out. Yeah, it's very possible.
0: I can't. I think they do appear again, but 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 to an effect that 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 actually would support that that hypothesis, because one of the things I noted was is the scene where there's one of the scenes where Riff goes hauling ass down a hallway. I I forget at what particular point it is, but I believe it's one of those characters who's sitting there and they don't react at all to Riff sort of hauling ass out of there. And there's also the illusion when those two characters first show up that they've been doing this for a while.
3: Yeah, right. They make a weird point of talking about that. Like, why would they point that out? Be like, oh, we know each other. We've been doing this for a while.
0: Yeah, it's and a lot of that, my read on it goes again into trying to figure out whether or not you, there's a breaking point in the movie where it, where it switches over to being the coma sequence or whether or not it's the entire thing. And one of the things, when I first saw the movie, I assumed it was like, okay, one of those weird hallucinatory sequences like the strobing lights or something, that must have been you know, the inciting incident and that must've been the coma moment yeah. um, or the sex scene, something like that. My first time seeing it, but the, going back and rewatching it, I'm starting to lean more towards like what Nick mentioned. And, and it's, it circles back to a lot of the Jeremy and the riff stuff, but it's also just the, the, the kind of preponderance of, of male imagery. And I don't know if this was like, so supposed to be like symbolic for male toxicity, like for what the riff character is, but even aside from riff and what he embodies, Specifically, her cell phone is attributed to boys, Uh, specifically, you know, the figures in the dream have a somewhat male image. Um, There is a static shot during the the one nightmare sequence, which ends with this very the, the doors opening and it ends with this very 70s ish scare where it kind of has this camera rotation and a piano music sting as it closes in on this cherubic statue. And then there is a brief image Right after that, that you can barely gather, but I took a screenshot of it, um, not a high res one, unfortunately, and tried to, you know, gloss it up as best I could and brighten it up. And it appears to be, you know, the nightmarish figures, but one of them is a male figure who appears to be sitting on a throne, essentially, where it's and then there's a figure behind him. But that figure appears to be expressly feminine in physique. So hmm. that was just a guess. But as I went through it, also, they, they mentioned the study that it's four men to two women. And then the first person who disappears that the movie posits explicitly appears is, is the other woman is Emily. So I, I, what I was wrestling with for a lot of it too, is how much of this is about, because things I never thought I would say <laughs> initially in the podcast, but is I'm woefully underread on Carl Jung. And, <laughs> but I know, aren't there elements of like the whole anima and animus part of dream theory? It, that's also gendered from what I briefly read about it, where, One of those is... Yeah,
1: the anima and the animus are the perfect opposite sex exists within each of us. Okay. So within each of us, there's the perfect... Like, we're male, there'd be a perfect woman. And in a woman,
3: there'd be a perfect man. And those gender ideas. Okay. There's a couple... I think that's all fascinating. And there's a couple other weird clues that are thrown into there. We've got two movie posters that show that have to mean something. Weekend at Bernie's and The Terminator. (laughs) Yep. Well, <laughs> when you throw a, like a, something like that into a movie where there there's no good reason they should be there, that to me feels like here's a clue. She's also wearing a Romero High School T-shirt. That,
2: well, here's the thing That's those are only a few of the breadcrumbs. You have the Romero High School T-shirt. You have the Weekend of Bernies. You have the Terminator. The book Sarah picks up is Philip K. Dick's We Can Build You, right? Which is all about simulacrum. And we also have uh, Doctor Myers is wearing the exact same glasses George Romero wears
1: right well those glasses could have their own movie man i
2: know right but this is all <laughs> references to androids simulcrum, zombies mm. this, it's all
3: these illusions of life but not actual life that's exactly what i thought that's what i wrote down is that um weekend at burnings is about someone pretending <laughs> to be alive yep Who's not terminator is about machines that are they're sort of alive, you know, they're sort of fake life in some way. I didn't read too much into Romero. There were three Romero references that I caught. And I can't really, as being a sort of Romero expert, nothing jumped out to me about the movies being particularly Romero-esque, except for maybe just that sort of generic idea of zombies being another thing that were sort of alive but not. Yes. You know, just yes. like a zombie being alive but not alive is really analogous to being in a coma. You're yep. alive, but not really.
0: Yeah, and he's, in interviews with, with Anthony Scott Burns, he's very open about a lot of his influences. He's also very open about talking about how this movie is is kind of a, an ode to his childhood of loving movies and, and the things that inspired him. And he mentions a lot of those 80s movies. Um, he, mentions, he also
1: mentions Alice in Wonderland and Tron as yes, big influences. That's, so...
0: Alice in Wonderland, he mentions a lot, specifically Disney's Alice in Wonderland, which very much comes through in the nightmare sequences. It comes through in a lot of ways in a very broad plot sense, but those, the nightmare sequences always begin with going through a doorway or plunging through. They all have this very down-the-rabbit-hole yep. visual effect of you know plunging through something. And then when, with Tron, when, as soon as she shows up in the sleep suit, it was like, yep. well, yep. my first thought initially was, oh, that looks like Mobius designed it. And I didn't realize until reading up for this that Mobius worked on the designs for Tron. I was like, well, that
1: makes sense. Just real quick on the sleep suit. Anthony Scott Burns picked out most of the clothes in this, but the sleep suit was designed by somebody who won Project Runway Canada, and it was based on Mobius art. Ah, all right. Very nice. I don't remember. That was one of the original notes I had. I don't remember why I picked that up. So there you go. I, I will say this. It's one of the reasons that made me think it really was all a dream because the sleep suits don't have socks and these are people all have trouble sleeping. So they make <laughs> them sleep without blankets covering their feet. Right? So they're just feet out in the air. And that that doesn't work in humanity. So clearly that
2: part's a dream.
0: gonna really a lot of <laughs> touch points for you.
2: Yeah, the, the no blanket really upset me. <laughs> so the two other references I got, let me know if you, this is it for you guys as well, is that there's obvious shining feel in execution of the cinematography not to mention the hospital room is 237 as well so I mean that's just a, yeah. a dead giveaway there some definite influences did anybody else get Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker just watching the dream sequences I
3: 100% went back to that film just the way he was going down hallways I hadn't thought of I mean I just recently watched Stalker again and I I I, did, I can't say it jumped out at me but now that you mention it there is a sense of you know you could look at stalker in the sense of like there's a person taking you into a dream world and then trying to guide you through it which is sort of what like you know charitably riff is doing and the people in the in the uh, experiment you're definitely right on about a, just the general feel of kubrick like i mean it's so easy to throw around like kubrick this than kubrick that but really True. if anyone is doing some of those interesting like like the uh I think of just the the way he frames faces his mm-hmm. tracking shots his his long crossfades the way his he has like an extra beat before he cuts to another shot the editing it's all got this weird rhythm of a kubrick
0: yeah he also cites a lot being influenced by early michael mann he specifically cites uh, Manhunter and Thief, and it's been a while since I'd seen Manhunter. In fact, I think the last time I saw Manhunter is when Nick and I watched it and showed it to Jake for the first time. So good, which was a while ago. But <laughs> but Thief is one of my favorite movies, and watching it, there's you know the score is very synth electronic heavy, but not, but less so in a Carpenter sense, and more so in a vaguely Tangerine Dream sense. And Tangerine Dream did the score for thief in the way it has this sort of ambiance to it
1: just funny because the actual people who worked on the score were all in the rise of the synths the john carpenter movie
0: but just in terms of the overall feel to it and not as rhythmic and more just you know the slow ambient but where it visually came through is as soon as you get into the back half and riff is driving through the city and it's all just wet streets and blue neon is oh this is thief this is absolutely thief the diner scene i'm i'm taking as a thief homage the The place is an actual place in Canada. So is the coffee shop that appears early on. But so, yeah, a lot of that stuff definitely seemed to be Michael Mann inspired in visuals. And in terms of, uh, Burns has also mentioned in interviews that he's a big fan of, this was brought up in talking about kind of the conflicting visuals in terms of sort of the retro aesthetic of some of the technology versus cell phones and some of the, the conflicting visuals there. And he talked about, how he likes movies that are examples of you know something that's not quite reality. And the three things he cited as examples of that were Twin Peaks and David Lynch's dream logic in general. But he said Twin Peaks, Body Double, and Sleepaway Camp. Oh my! So if we, if you want to come on the pond, do a double feature of Body Double and Sleepaway Camp, <laughs> anytime.
3: The uh, I mean, I did Twin Peaks was another sort of easier reference for this. There's my favorite scene in all of Twin Peaks was, I don't know, I think maybe it was season two. Bobby is sitting down with his dad, the general, or yeah, was that scene? Yep. Um, and they're in a diner, and the scene has very little uh, narrative consequence, but the dad starts telling Bobby Briggs about his dream that he had, and it's a nonsensical dream, and Bobby just starts crying, and it's it's, I love it because it's just like pure cinema type magic that I don't understand any of it, but the music is so beautiful and the characters seem to be almost like moved, not by what's necessarily happening in the scene, but almost as if they can hear the music and they're like, they're moved by almost the scene from a remove. And there's come true does that in a way that I haven't seen done that well since then, where it's just, it can create this sort of un- quantifiable sadness mm. just through image and music that doesn't feel cheap. It Whereas, it, you know, you can have, you know, big rising John Williams score and an emotion can feel cheap, but here it just feels like, right. It just feels magical. And you can see that in the club scene. You can see that in a lot of scenes, really.
1: Yeah. It's funny. The movie, it most reminded me of watching it both times, all well, three times, really, was It Follows. Sure. Mm. And it, it has that same kind of, you talked about the, the incongruity and things like the Weekend of Burning's posters, but there being cell phones. And you, like So you can't fix it in time. You can't fix it in place. You can't fix it in season. So you're you're just uncomfortable the entire time. Like it looks cold out, but nobody's wearing a jacket, you know, that kind of thing. and it does that so masterfully through the whole thing. There's never a moment watching this film where you feel like your feet are on solid ground with it, but you also don't feel like you're drifting away from it. Like you feel grounded, but floating.
3: Yeah. But what's interesting about it is where I think it follows really has that sense of, there's a real sense of terror. In it follows. Yeah. Oh yeah. Whereas there's something about come true that is just kind of beautiful. Yes. Like the whole thing, there's just, there's just a beauty to the whole thing.
1: It's a haunting, sad, melancholy, but the good kind.
3: It's almost not a horror movie. No, it's not. It's not very scary. It's just this odd kind of haunted, longing, melancholy type of feeling. It's
2: an emotion and a dream and an ambiance and an atmosphere put into a movie, and that is its essence. And it's pretty. It's damn
3: pretty. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, I, I got the sense, and I don't I don't generally this I love hearing about all of his interviews and stuff because I never read any interviews or anything like that. I'm I'm a real I don't listen to commentaries or I'm not I'm not a bonus features guy. I like watching the movie and that's it. So, but I like hearing this other stuff from you guys. So I don't you know I don't know his I don't know the background of his in, intent from this stuff. But, I mean, we're referencing all these other movies. And and to throw in even one more, I like how the team at the uh, experiment, they reminded me in a really fun way of the the investigation team in Poltergeist. Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> they had, like, the older, <laughs> the older guy and some younger people that were there. And although those were small roles, you know, that and they were sort of subtle roles and not really explosive roles, I liked all those characters. I liked every single one of them. But but I, I guess what I want to say is I want to also just credit this for being its own thing. Like it doesn't feel to me like a pastiche in the way of like a Tarantino movie, movie does. Not at all. This really feels like, despite I, I think the references we're making are partly just because it's so exciting and when you when you find something that feels this original and maybe just feels this complete and of its own self. Yeah. It's like natural human. Um, Desire to want to connect it to other things, to try to explain what you're feeling, uh-huh. but I think it 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 really is its own little piece of genius. And my sense of it, not having read any of the articles or anything, is that it's a really uh, pretty low budget movie, but it just is just impeccable. Like it's gorgeous. I just I I want to give credit to the director for every choice including the casting of julia sarah stone who we haven't talked about yes who is just so amazing in this i don't know again because i haven't looked i don't know what she's done since but to me this feels like the kind of role that is like anya taylor joy in the witch or mm. you know, jennifer Lowen in winter's bone or something where it feels like this could be the start of a, a huge career with it, where she would end up making Marlowe movies, and it ends up not being very interesting. But ideally, she just will kind of stay in this. Spider, I don't know anything about her. Maybe she doesn't even like the act. Who knows? Maybe she's done.
2: I don't know where she's going next, but I know she was in Falling Skies, The Unseen, and The Killing. She's very Canadian.
0: Yeah, The Killing is where Anthony Scott Burns first saw her. She was in, I think it was season three. Cause I dropped out early in season two and I don't think she was in that. It's so
3: smart of him to cast somebody with gigantic eyes Mm. in a role. That's all about looking tired Yeah, (laughs) where the eyes tell you everything about how she's feeling. She is. And then she gets that iconic eye patch. Yeah, Like I could just watch that face forever. I mean, it's, it's such good casting.
1: Yeah. I, all through the casting is incredible, but she, you're right. She is, it's a, titanic performance that she puts on especially when you consider like the, the first what 10 or so minutes of this film doesn't have any dialogue
3: yeah it's, it's 6 minutes and 24 seconds <laughs> is that what wow <laughs> but even that at that point is um very little that's when you get the first spoken words but really if you're, you're talking about a full conversation yeah it's probably a, it's a few minutes later
0: yeah cuz the first spoken words are classmates like picking on her i think or like waking her up or something so it's something kind of tertiary yeah
3: yeah, her first conversation is with her friend. I think they're in the coffee house, maybe. Yeah, with Zoe. but it's pretty minor.
0: But she commands
1: that first ten minutes and brings you right into the film and her world pretty much. Yep, right away, just and it it's it's impeccable, and it it's 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 hard to not just consistently lavish praise on everything about this film. But you're right, it is it is a near perfect film, and it just they don't feel to me like there's any missteps or mistakes in it. Even when it gets really weird at the end with the fangs and the, mm-hmm. you know, and all that, it's just, that feels perfectly like,
2: yeah, that, that's how this should go. That makes sense. It doesn't, but it did. To me, that was her embracing the fact that it's a dream, realizing that it's not reality, that, you know, she is anything she wants here.
3: I'm trying to remember the fangs thing. So we, we first see the fangs.
2: In his she- dream.
3: In his dream, yeah, they're like kissing or something, and they both have fangs. In his dream,
1: and it makes me think that that's a happy memory of hers, like a Halloween or something. Mm-hmm. And then when she gets to the end, even though she's you know thumbed out his eyes, when she sees the the fangs, it's her remembering something that's that's real, hmm. and it manifests, and that's when you see the the thing. And it, it makes me think that the fangs are symbolic that she understands finally. Like Nick just said, what this is. She's in the dream.
3: All right. Yeah.
1: You know, and it's, it may be the sign that she's waking up or, or not. I mean, there's no definitive answers in this. The whole thing is, you know, very, the, the, the collective unconscious theory from Jung. That's what it's all exploring. So who knows where we actually end up, but
2: I think it's hard to think of any vampiric character as being overly powerless. You know, it's a hungering, empowering, you know, it, it, it's a symbol of, becoming more than yourself. And so it's an awakening. And it very much feels to me like it's a
3: true moment of her first steps to coming out of this. When she wakes up and she's, you know, gouged out Riff's eyes, that if I'm not mistaken, that's a direct picking up from when they were in bed together. Not like it. And then like they're in bed together and he there's a some sort of freak out. And then we go on this sort of side journey and then we come back to that spot again. And he's dead, which makes me think they were having sex and she killed him. Like she was alarmed or realized what was happening or something and killed him in that bed. I don't I don't know. I may be wrong, <laughs> but
1: aren't their positions reversed?
3: Uh, when she has the she's yes. she's he's, he's on top, top
1: and then she's on top when it comes back to it.
0: Different part of the apartment too, I think, is I the think they're in his bedroom, I think. When she sees the figures before when he's on top and at the end they're on the couch.
3: Yeah, I feel like that's true.
0: And I think that's done mainly so it can be a repeat of... Because that's when she wakes up in the apartment, she wakes up on the couch and her sequence of moving through the apartment is basically repeated because before she goes and sees his dream, she goes into the bathroom when she first wakes up. And then so that exact same path of action is repeated in that finale.
1: Is the first sex scene during the shadow self portion or is it in the anima and animus chapter
0: it's in the give me one because i made notes of where the breaks i think the shadow is after i think it is yeah um so no the shadow is before so we start with the persona right the switch to anima and animus is when she's en route to the study for the first night the shadow header is immediately after riff reveals the nature of the experiment and the self is uh i think that's immediately before she wakes up and my note says it's after the sleep paralysis and and she's taken from the club so that would be where riff comes and gets her and takes her back to his apartment mm-hmm. so that i think that's where the the self placard comes into place
2: so now, there are two aspects here i think that at least i interpreted that i feel gives some meaning to the film so for starters there's a moment in the film where they're explaining the stages of sleep and they also get into discussing the delta stage where if you would be woken up there you wouldn't know where you are and it almost feels like when she passes out during the sex scene that's her going into a delta going into a no longer knowing where she is being lost in that delta stage yeah that's what it feels like to me when she comes back out of it that officially comes back out of the delta i think she's back in the bedroom where she knows where she is and she's back in that level of dream state like i I feel the field is still remnants of that delta if you will second thing um i feel it's important here is as the characters are killed off as like they're taken either by the specters or she gouges out his eyes I mean, these are mental representations of fixtures of her dream realm. They represent parts of her and things that matter to her. As she kills them off, she is releasing the shackles of her dream. So, like, the less connections she has, the more she's rising to uh, a wakeful state. I feel her killing him is, again, another way of her pushing back from the coma and pushing back into reality.
1: Well, the, the self in, in Jungian theory is essentially everything that we actually are, mm-hmm. like everything we were and everything we will be is the self. So it's like all this where it kind of comes together so that that would track with that. Whereas like, you know, it starts with the persona, which is everything we show to the world, you know, everything we, we pretend to be or we let people see. So, it, it, yeah, that, that, that makes a bit of sense with that theory, I think. Yeah. I'm I'm not a Youngian scholar, so if I'm getting that wrong, I you know my mom was, so I, I read some Young <laughs> as a kid.
2: This will be the one episode she listens to, and she's like, "God damn it, Jake!"
1: <laughs> it's, it's been a very long time since I've read any, but uh, I I kind of remember that stuff, I I looked up a little bit of a refresher, but it yeah, I just don't expect my horror movies to have Youngian chapter titles. Man, it's it's an experience. This film,
3: yeah. And what's so great about it? And I guess you'd say this about at least the first like season of Twin Peaks originally is that, you know, we can sit here and like discuss theory uh, all night, but it's also just a smooth pleasure to watch. You know, it doesn't feel like trying to think of a a movie where it's just aggressively a puzzle. And it's Mm -hmm. like maybe something like, I don't know if I'd say Donnie Darko, but, but movies that are just, you know, They're all knocked into jagged pieces and figuring out is what it wants you to do. Whereas this, we don't have to have any of this discussion. And it's still just a beautiful ride. It's an
2: experience. It's more of an experience than it is a story. Yeah. When we first
0: talked about it uh, last year, after I first saw it and I, and I mentioned, I'd seen it in our group chat. I think I mentioned at the time that I was hoping Jake would see it and knowing like, like Jake said at the onset, knowing what's come up on the pod before, you know, there would be potential for backlash at that ending, depending on your read. <laughs> but I honestly thought the execution of this, even if you choose not to engage with the movie yeah. on that level, or if you do engage with it, you don't like what you find, I honestly think, especially from a horror fan's perspective, the execution of it, it's still worth the ride. Like it's it is so like you said it, it feels like such a cohesive whole and it's it's just such an overall experience you know, you brought up the music earlier and how intrinsic the music is and how omnipresent it is it's funny talking about things that have bothered us about movies in the past one of the things i usually have harped on in movies we've done in the pop before is, is i usually feel they're overscored and it, yeah. it, i especially horror movies it's you know nine times out of ten for me it's less is more and i could always do with a little more score whereas this is very much in the opposite direction and i can't imagine it being any other way yeah where it's it's so infused in in just the dna of everything this movie is and but just also yeah the execution of the dream sequences and you know the performances and whatnot it's like you know even if I said even if you get irked by that ending and that throws a wrench into things i really think if you're a horror fan it's worth the ride it's worth trying
1: if you can combine dread and melancholy in a movie with captivating performances like this, and that pervasive sense of just unease in everything, uh, you're gonna catch me every time.
2: See, I feel that you know. Coming back to identity, real quick, I think I have. Do we have to. I think <laughs> I have the exact opposite approach to it than Jake does. So in the film, you don't mind having two hours wasted. In the film, you have you know the real world, and they're doing all this. Doesn't really affect the real world type activities and so you feel like the stakes don't matter the people don't matter and you're just left with this you know broken crazy guy in the backup car who cares that's the way jake looks at it and i respect that that is definitely one way to look no at you it. don't but it is oh no i get it i get it but see i look at it from the opposite <laughs> side it's that the guy in reality that part of the story doesn't matter that is pointless it doesn't matter because like everything that happens in the dream is the battle for the soul and the identity and the persona. And that is a personal struggle. And that is the, you know, trying to hold on to one's humanity. And that is the part of the story that is interesting and matters. And very much so in my opinion, kind of parallels to this, this is all about one person and their struggle for their humanity and wakefulness and existence, you know, within themselves, you know, the outside world, doesn't matter in this as much as it doesn't in identity. And if you can approach it that way, they're good films.
3: I feel like we're all giving our closing statements here. (laughs) So mine would be that it is my favorite type of movie and to sum up what that is, it's a movie that couldn't have been made by anyone else. Yep. You could you don't you don't hand the script to anyone else and it, it is anything. This movie could only be made by this director and that's that's usually All my favorite movies. It can only be this film. It could have never existed in any other way.
0: Well, if we're talking about pieces that feel, you know, so unique in the horror landscape, that's probably a good transition point for us to talk about The Ghost That Ate Us.
2: (laughs) I love that title. With the
0: subtitle of The Tragic True Story of the Burger City Poltergeist. So this is newly released from uh, Raw Dog Screaming Press. I wanted to talk, ask you a little bit about the inception point to writing a, a sort of true crime, uh, I don't know if uh, like mockumentary or, or riff approach to the horror genre, and how that came about.
3: Well, everything about this book is kind of different for me. It's my first <laughs> book with a small press. Usually, I work with the, the, the bigger presses, but um, just increasingly as I get older, I just that's where I find in my reading is going to the the weirder and stranger stuff. So I want to start trying to participate in that too. And so for this project, I did have an unusual concept and what's, which was writing a horror novel in the form of a nonfiction book. So you, it feels uh, like you're reading a uh, true crime, you know, it's got footnotes, it's got photos, captions. Mm -hmm. I'm present. So not majorly, but I'm sort of present as telling you why I'm writing this book and why I've been getting all the interviews that other people couldn't have gotten because the story is sort of takes place near my hometown so the people kind of trust me so that was I mean the impetus was sort of one as I'm always trying to set up new problems for me to solve narratively uh, new ways for me to work because after you get you've written 20 books or whatever you want to make sure you don't fall into a rut and start writing the same book over and over mm. so I'm always trying to keep myself New hurdles or just new problems, and the problem here was a whole new different kind of writing style. The sort of mostly objective nonfiction writing bears no resemblance to how I normally write. It's uh, it's journalistic writing where you use a lot of data and stats and info dumps. Sometimes you know, in a, in a novel, you wouldn't just say, "Here's John. Let me tell you everything about their background," but in a, in a journalistic article, you might. You might say he was born here. He's this, this, or his dad works at this place. And it creates all sorts of new problems for drama. You know, at the outset of the book, the very first page of the book tells you who lives and who dies. Because as, yeah. as a nonfiction writer, you have that information. And if this were a real true crime event that people know about, they already have that information too. So the drama has to come from other places. So that was sort of the format end of it. And as far as like the, the topic, which is a, poltergeist event at a fast food joint (laughs) i liked it because one because it's absurd and it's ostensibly funny and it is funny for a while but then i was able to do that thing where it's it you know it ends with serious tragedy you know that from page one so it's a matter of saying how do these this funny good times that are sort of happening at this restaurant how do they go so bad and the book slowly gets sort of less and less funny and more and more serious until it gets quite dark at the end. And Poltergeist, as you know, we know from the movie and other things, Poltergeists tend to surround a family. And I've always been interested in my books about alternative families. And I think coworkers are certainly that. If you, especially if you worked at a restaurant, whether it's fast food or not, you know you do form a dysfunctional family with your your coworkers. And I was interested in how a poltergeist would do that and how it would take all the, uh, in the same way it might rip apart a family. It would exacerbate all the, the sort of politely buried animosities and stresses and tensions between the characters that, you know, you sort of know exists, but you know, you all have to work together. So you just kind of bury it. And they all think this poltergeist, because it starts going viral online, Videos of it that it's going to be their ticket out of this, you know, Podunk Iowa town and out of this terrible job, and it becomes just the opposite. It slowly, even if it doesn't exist and it may not exist, it doesn't matter. Its presence or supposed presence reveals all the fault lines in their relationships and just uh, tears them to pieces.
0: Yeah, wow. we, this is we, we mentioned it on a recent episode, but it, so the the three of us. Nick, Jake, and I, so we initially met because we all worked at a Borders Books and Music mm-hmm. together. And that's where we became friends working there. And then, and we have just stayed friends ever since. So, yeah, the, the found family element of that, too, <laughs> and the retail angle of, <laughs> albeit fast food, was certainly resonant. And, and, your, <laughs> and yeah, your approach that was one of the questions I had going in because uh, I knew the, the gist of the premise from when I pre ordered it. Also worth noting, I don't know if Raw Dog is going to be selling it directly going forward. I, I get I don't know if it was a limited thing with for the pre-orders. But as part of the pre-order, it had by far the best packaging I have seen on a horror release. For This is the first horror novel that came with nutrition facts on the envelope. <laughs> <laughs> so book was making me laugh before I even opened the package. But it was one of my questions going in was whether or not you will be writing the novel as you know, approaching it as you or, or via you know, a, a fictional author. And then I read the foreword and you get to the acknowledgements and you're listening, to Brian Keene. So, oh, nope, this is him. <laughs>
3: so Yeah. Yeah. All the acknowledgements are real, but there's a few of them that aren't just as the same way the footnotes play that game mm-hmm. where like about half the footnotes in the book are real footnotes that refer to real things and about half of them aren't. So you'll get most people when they read it, they do a little Googling during the first 50 pages trying to figure out, how much of this is real and how much of this is fake? And it's, you know, it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be disorienting that way.
0: Yeah. Hope everyone goes and checks it out. The ghost that ate us. It's out now from Raw Dog Screaming Press. And you've got a busy fall coming up. So the next one for you is Graveyard Girls.
3: Yeah. So this is a. Uh, I have four novels out this year. Sure. Uh, wow. And three comic books that are starting. Right. So it's a. It's. One of my, you know, I think maybe my busiest year. That's that's quite a bit. Glad you had time to come talk to us. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate it. I mean, that doesn't mean I'm writing four novels this year. <laughs> but although I might. I might um, at this rate. Yeah, so uh Ghost of the Dead Us came out a few weeks ago. Next is a um, the first book in a five-book series for middle-grade readers called The Graveyard Girls. So it's um, kind of middle school drama, but... They tell scary stories, and every book has this sort of section in the middle. And you can see it from the outside of the, the book, the pages are shaded, this horror story that, that they tell. So there's a full on kind of Krausian horror story right in the middle that sort of affects the, the stories on both sides. And that's co written with uh, Lisi Harrison, who's a big best selling author for this age range, uh, who, who does mostly sort of. Middle grade and young adult, kind of you know, girl drama stuff. So it's a real peanut butter and chocolate type type of melding of two people who do completely different things. Nice joining up, and then I have another collaboration. Yeah, after that, a month after that, called Wrath, which you mentioned was co-written with this uh, brilliant geneticist, and it's it's sort of Michael Crichton in a way. It's like it's based on it's all real science and. It, it's almost wrong to say it's near future. It's almost like right now. It, it may be just a skosh, a tiny bit into the future, but most of the stuff that's in the book is happening here. There are some things that because of certain laws that aren't happening here but are happening in a few other countries. But to cut to the chase, it's about a company called Edited Pets. So they uh, they create designer pets for the, the wide marketplace. And nice. So the book opens with the equivalent of an Apple launch, except they're launching their new pet, which is a rat named Sammy. So you can go out and buy a Sammy when they're ready to come out. This is the prototype that they're showing off. Uh, now, rat sounds scary, but it's been genetically modified so that it has big eyes and fluffy fur, and it is really smart, really smart. It can like communicate through like, a little touchpad. Like a chibi rat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, you know things go wrong essentially they're they're trying to rush out this project before they can stop the human growth hormone in its brain it's it's very scientific and we make it approachable but it is you know the science is real there's a this gene called the Navalis gene that swells the brain which makes the rat smarter and smarter but they haven't figured out how to stop it so uh, but they're but they're planning on it but they're like okay we have we have this many months till the rat hits the market. We're gonna figure this out, but the the prototype rat gets out essentially, and because the brain keeps growing, eventually it hits the skull, and what that creates is sort of madness. So what you get is a kind of flowers for Algernon thing, where the rat gets smarter and smarter and smarter until its brain hits the skull and then it starts going insane. I love it. So it, if it would breed and rats breed, you know like wildfire, like every three months. So if it breeds, it will then these humanized rats will take over by our projections, all major cities within five years and all humans will be cast out of cities. Like that's how, that's how bad it would go (laughs) if this were to happen. So it's a really cool book. I've never written something that was so, you know, based in real science. So that's the last book of the year. And then I have three comic books coming out. I know two
0: of them. You've got what, I don't know if it's your first work for AWA, but you're doing uh, year zero volume zero.
3: Yeah. When for AWA and I've got a second comic for AWA that's coming out near the end of the year that hasn't been announced yet. Oh, okay. And then I've got one from vault that's called the cemeterians, mm-hmm. but it's packaged in a two story comic four issues. The comic is, Overall, it's called Double Feature because there's two stories in each one. So it's four issues, but they're big issues. So it's more like the equivalent of six. And then that's it. Then it's January. It's a new year. Love it. Well,
0: that's that's an exciting fall.
3: It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot.
0: Oh, I was delighted when I saw we were we're big comic fans in general, but I'm very partial to Vault. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So I was really excited when I saw the Double Feature announcement. That's all that you were working on a vault book again.
3: Yeah, I've got more comic and graphic novel stuff coming up too that is not to the announcement phases yet. But I'm going to keep – I really have been enjoying that work a lot. Autonomous was my first comic. I didn't grow up with comics at all. So I was coming to it with almost no knowledge of comics. Wow. well, It's like hitting a home run in your first at-bat.
0: You made the jump very (laughs) easily.
3: Yeah, I'd read only a few comics ever. Over the past like 10 years, I I, I had read some graphic novels, but just didn't grow up with comic books. So, um, the the, the upside to that is that now I'm reading comics and graphic novels like crazy. So, and there's like just an infinity of great stuff to read to catch up on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Particularly horror comics right now, it's, it's, we're we're in a really great period, have been for the last few years of just so much great stuff out there. But that's, that's me. Am- I'm I'm really taking it back, but because you, honestly, we we love the hell out of that series. We talked about it. We we did a couple live streams with our local comic shop just talking about horror books that yeah. are on the market, and in both of them, we talked about how much we love the autumnal. And yeah, it really would have thought the you had been a lifelong comic reader in terms of how well you know you, everything was laid out, and you let the you know the visuals by Chris Sheehan and Jason Wordy you know just carry it it was it was so well put together. the only
3: comics i ever read as a kid were my mom once bought me a three pack of comics that were the last three issues of marvel's secret wars from the 80s oh wow so but if they're the last three issues so i had no idea what the hell was <laughs> going. We randomly bought them one day when she was we, i came from a small town in iowa so she was in some bigger town and randomly did this impulse by these three issues of a story that I had no idea what was going on. But I, I, I did read those three issues many times because it, it, I think parts, because they didn't have the rest of the story, they were really intriguing to me. Because I didn't, who the hell were these people? Where were they? What was going on? I had no idea. But no, I, that was about it.
1: Have you ever gone back and read the rest of the series?
3: Yeah, yeah. So a couple of okay. years ago, <laughs> I, I finally, uh, I don't know why this never occurred to me, but finally, I went back, and I got the whole series, and uh, I thought it was great.
1: I have a, a poster of one of those covers, that yep. Mike
3: Zek. The Doctor Doom Do,
0: cover. I said, that had to be one of the last three. Yeah,
3: it was. I, I, know, yep. I know exactly which one you're talking about.
1: It's One of my all-time favorite comic covers. Yeah, it's one of the last three. I think it's issue 10, if I remember yeah,
0: correctly. Yeah, I think so,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I,
3: had, I think I had 10, 11, 12, maybe.
1: Wow. That's three pretty interesting comics to start with. Yeah,
3: they you know. Tided me over for thirty years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Vault does all those like classic cover homages. You know, there's the House of Mystery homage that was done for the plot. The Savage Shores, I think, had was an homage to Tomb of Dracula. So, at some point, for one of your books for them, you have to get them to do a riff on Secret Wars number ten of the Doctor Doom. Oh, <laughs> that
3: would be perfect. Yeah, when autumnal came out, it was you know it was 2020. So, a lot of the cool like convention only. Editions and stuff didn't really happen because yeah. there were no, there were no events. Uh, so I missed out on uh, some of that fun, but I love it. You know, from what I understand sometimes, you know, really, really great writers try to do comics, and it just, for whatever reason it just doesn't click. But for me, it just clicked immediately. Like I just, I loved it from like the first few pages. Like, oh, I got this. I, I, it feels like a cool little Jenga puzzle. It's like you're writing a story, but you're also, having to build blocks on the pages and page turns. And there was a, a cool puzzle to it that I really liked.
0: Well, we yeah, we love that series. We can't wait to read your other series you've got coming out this year. But mostly we couldn't wait to talk to you. So, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the pod.
2: Hey,
3: thank, thank you. you. Muppets, yay. Yay. Hey. <laughs> uh, you're very welcome, guys. It was really fun. Thanks again.
0: Once again, big thanks to Daniel Krauss for coming on. No joke, we had been hoping to get him on the pod at some point, so we were so excited that it worked out that we could have him on for Come True.
1: He was delightful. Yeah, that was a lot of fun.
0: had a great time talking to him, and and sincerely, we love his work. Go buy The Ghost That Ate Us from Raw Dog Screaming Press. It's available wherever you get your books. Like you said, he's got a ton of stuff coming up. Go read The Autumnal, which we loved, and then go to your local comic shop and pre-order the sanitarians and year zero volume zero before final order cutoff for those because we're sure those are going to be great
1: and i think the autumnal trade just recently came out right
0: yeah so we, we had that chat with daniel about kind of iconic comic covers which is funny because he had a rather notorious comic cover for the autumnal for folks who aren't aware so for the autumnal trade collection i forget which issue it is but they they used the cover of one of the individual issues for the cover for the trade and Amazon flagged it basically as explicit content and wouldn't sell it. So there was the, like the week of its initial release. You couldn't get it on Amazon because it got flagged instantly. So, yeah, there was a lot of hubbub about that initially. Pretty sure that's been fixed. But if Amazon doesn't, just go to your local comic shop and get it there. But yeah.
1: And frankly, go there first. Come on. What are we doing here? Yeah,
0: Priorities. <sighs> yeah. But what a fun chat and what a fun movie to talk about.
1: Yeah. I I just adored it. So you know, I I didn't do it during this, but I do have a community connection. It's loose, so Nick is going to hate it. Yeah, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> so <laughs> as we discussed, uh, Anthony Scott Burns wrote Father's Day and directed Father's Day for Yay. the Holidays anthology, which is something that we're eventually going to have to do because we've talked about it a few times. Certainly, the Easter Bunny scene it's has got come some
2: up. Wonderful bits to it.
0: It's there's so much talent that worked on that movie, but it's funny. The only two, and this isn't a commentary on. The other segments, but the only two segments I remember are Father's Day and the Easter Bunny. He goes, those two are hard to forget.
2: I remember those two, and I always remember St. Patrick's Day and New Year's. Well,
1: well, the one we're talking about is the, I believe it was Christmas, that had Seth Green in it.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: <laughs> and Seth Green, of course, appeared in the final episode of Community. In, appropriately, and the reason I chose him, because there was a couple other more tangential ones, but Seth Green appears in what is an imaginary sequence in the community finale. And I liked the idea of our community connection being a guy appearing in an imaginary sequence. So Seth Green was in Holidays, which featured Anthony Scott Burns, which is the probably the trigger for us to even watch this movie initially. So uh, there you go. That's our community connection.
0: Yeah, you guys saw Holidays before I did. And I remember when you were coming out of it, you said specifically it was like that Father's Day segment was really good.
2: It's yeah. very yeah, it hits
1: you hard, and you you can see traces of it of what we liked about that in this writ yes. large, including the forward momentum. Yep, the momentum thing is very strong in Father's Day, and it and it is in in this with the dreams like we discussed.
2: Very forced perspective, first person view. Yeah,
0: yeah, he absolutely has a voice in more ways than one. Like is we're we're about to do a production rundown with Nick, and which a lot of it is Anthony Scott Burns, and he so he fills so many roles on it that is. His voice absolutely comes through, but also comes through in his uh, his short films as well, which um, he did. We talked in our discussion with with Daniel about the Tron influence. And one of the things Anthony Scott Burns did was he did a Tron fan film, a trailer for a non-existent Tron movie called what was it called? Tron uh, Rising. I forget. I didn't write it down offhand. But his first original short film, aside from that, was a short film called Manifold. Which as of this recording is on YouTube. I definitely recommend people check it out because A, I think it's interesting. B, it has Stephen McCaddy, who we're very, very Yay. fond of here at the pod. So.
1: Tron Destiny.
0: Tron Destiny, that's it.
1: But also, yeah. Stephen McCaddy. Woo! Everything with him.
0: Yeah, and then he also had a short that he co-wrote and directed, which was I gotta look up the name here for that one. That one was Lost Boy. It took me so I couldn't remember the, the name of it. And that one has this very very stylized very kind of fist of the north star kind of uh japanese cinema aesthetic to it sort of cyberpunky. so again very striking visually but i mentioned that one because it was one of the things that struck me during we talked about all the visual influences in the film and a random one that struck me was in the monitoring bay where the the doctors camp out and watch everyone during the sleep study the establishing shot of that monitoring bay the camera starts on the ceiling and then tilts down. And very specifically, they've run cables, like big, thick, heavy cables, up along the wall and then up across the ceiling and then down behind this enormous bank of monitors. So it's, you know, the obvious thing is you you, they didn't have to do that from a logical perspective and and realizing, of course, the movie has a shitload of dream logic. You could have run those across the floor. So the, the visual choice to run those the way they did and across the ceiling and then down a it makes for a striking shot because the camera tilts down to reveal the monitors but it felt very otomo it felt very just the the layout of it of both the monitors and the machines i felt it just had that kind of organic mechanical effect with the the tubes and whatnot that katsuhiro otomo stuff did who someone else we might be talking about pretty soon on this pod so part of why i had him on the brain
1: Also, all the the screens, I guess, are from Blade Runner or match screens in Blade Runner. Yep. Like he spent weeks kind of tracking down. So they matched what was in Deckard's apartment.
2: Wow. Okay. So I felt that, too. Yeah.
0: We talked about the incongruities and you were talking about how, you know, it's you just kind of go with them in the film and and none of it really throws you. And yeah, for most of it, I just went with it. There's one point at which it threw me, which it's tied to the monitors, which is. When they have the big reveal where they kind of have the, the really up-close shot of one of the spectral figures as they're staring, and Riff talks to one of his coworkers, workers he says, get me an image of this in 4K, and it was a specific reference to 4K, particularly when you see the quality of the image, it was like, he means me 4 kilobytes, not <laughs> 4,000
3: pixels,
0: because... It's like not fork it. Take a picture of with your cell phone; it'll have the same amount of detail.
1: <laughs> well, so you want to you want to give us the production rundown, Nick?
2: Well, we've already hit like two thirds of it. Just talking about Anthony Scott Burns; <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> he basically did almost everything. Another note here, of course, is there's a story credit to Daniel Weisenberger, who wrote "Gutshot," "Butchers," and "Deadly Double Cross." Um, the film was produced by Copperheart Entertainment. Who also worked on things like Splice, in the Tall Grass, Ginger Snaps One, Two, and Three, woo, and the uh, 2006 Black Christmas.
0: Wow, yeah, Splice and in, in the Tall Grass being by Vincenzo Natale. and it, it's funny because when I, I thought of him when I saw the nightmare sequences in this movie the first time around, one of my first thoughts was, these look like storyboards for a Vincenzo Natali movie that never got made. Because he's got so many movies that he started to make. So, for folks who don't know, Vincenzo Natale he did Cube, he did Splice, he did, you know, In the Tall Grass. But he has a bunch of movies he was attached to that never got finished. Like he was attached to an adaptation of Swamp Thing that never got made. And so, every now and again, it'll be concept art or he'll put out concept art for Splice or something like that or for Cube and, and stuff that he worked on. And it has a lot of that same feel. So, when I, I, I was thinking of Vincenzo Natale when I saw this the first time, just in terms of how the the nightmare scapes were visualized, so seeing that they worked on this, I was like, oh shit!
2: Another fun crossover there is, is that uh, Anthony Scott Burns was the second unit director for In the Tall Grass. Yep. Little little, possibly playing off each other there. And of course this film was distributed by IFC Midnight, uh, who also of course distributed uh, The Babadook, Mad God, Human Centipede 1, 2, and 3, and The Autopsy <laughs> of Jane Doe. <laughs> I broke Eric there. <laughs>
1: There's one we should cover sometime is the autopsy. All three human centipedes?
0: No. Yes, I agree. <laughs>
1: oh. Please don't do that to me. Uh,
2: yeah. Real quick. I haven't seen the third one. So. I've not seen any of them, honestly. That'd be honestly. fresh for all of us. Uh, oh.
1: that, that would be an easy community connection since they're mentioned on community.
2: That's true. It's wow, true. really?
1: The, the first one is, yeah. It's on the Halloween episode in the Dean's Notes. It says, and look up something called the human centipede. <laughs> oh, I did see that episode. Okay. <laughs> so how about we just leave that one as a community connection floating out in the air and we don't actually do the movie.
0: <laughs>
2: All so right. we, that's the production rundown. But I want to talk about the, the actors real quick. Uh, we talked about Julia Sarah Stone. But we also have uh, Landon Liboron, who uh, is Jeremy. Him, I recognize strongly from Hemlock Grove. Oh, really? He did a good job there. Yeah. He was also in Truth or Dare and The Howling Reborn.
0: Just, I need to get this out there because I know it'll come up otherwise. For a friend of the pod, Steve will be listening to this. Landon LeBoiran, or, sorry, I'm not sure the pronunciation of the last name either, but he was also Declan Coyne on a few seasons of Degrassi, The Next Generation. Yes, he was. So, yes, he was. I had to get that out
2: there. <laughs> now, Dr. Meyer... Is played by Christopher Hetherington, who has been in things like Calico, John 316, and in Herschel Gordon-Lewis's Blood Mania. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> Not
1: much else. He didn't. I wow. Know he would have had more acting credits, but he, he hasn't been in a bunch. Nope.
2: He's got very little exposure. And finally, I have acting credits for Zoe, uh, who is played by Tedra Rogers, who's been in Here and After, The Wedding Fix, and... There's someone inside your house. And that's what I got. Did we have
1: I seen that? No, I don't think I've seen that. It's impossible to tell since it sounds exactly like everything else. (laughs) It's always a good thing when you look up a horror movie and you can't remember if you saw it or not. That that, that's always a sign (laughs) of a great movie. Clearly a
2: good one. Yeah. (laughs) Meant to ask
0: you during the discussion, Nick, did Hannah watch this one with you? She did. What'd she think?
2: She liked it. Yeah. Uh, Again, you know, I would not actually there are horror aspects and references and influences. It really is, to me, more of an art piece than a horror movie.
0: You're just calling down the thunder on Kool Aid Man Mick Garris to come busting through.
2: <laughs> I, I'm summoning him. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> is this a horror movie? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see,
1: I would. I I still think it's a pretty definitively a horror movie. It's scary.
2: Nah. I was not... I can't say I was scared, really.
0: Oh, I... This actually had a bit that I think made me... Like, made me leap out of my chair, but that actually got me a bit... I'm trying to remember, but it was the first time I saw it. It was specifically during the... I think it's the second nightmare sequence when they have the human figure that sort of dissolves into an ink blob Mm -hmm. as the camera approaches it. But there's a music sting with it, too. That one I was actually a little... <laughs> that bit. was
1: neat I just it's it's got such a pervasive sense of dread yes with the whole thing just this this overhanging something awful it feels like it's just constantly around the next corner and that that to me is what you know kind of definitive horror movie vibe that I'm looking for so yeah this this certainly fit that for me i I can see what you're saying I can see where
2: you're coming from but it's for, for me horror is that dread. That build up, and then pow! There's a punch. At some point, there's a punch in the face. Now, whether it's like a slasher where the hits come early and they keep coming, or it's like Paranormal Activity where it's all build up with a final punch at the end. You know, this one was just a setting piece. It was just it becomes a vampire an at the
1: end. Of course, it's a horror movie. Come uh, on, dude.
2: I bet that- you guys'
0: eyes are gouged out. What the fuck? Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm chuckling because your stab thing as me as. Has all star stuck in my head? The sounds start coming and they don't stop. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but I mean,
0: let's. Well, there's our intro.
1: The dreams start coming, coming and, and they, they don't, don't stop, stop coming.
2: coming. <laughs> I mean, she's a vampire, but really she's a vampire <laughs> and she just has teeth. And yes, he's dead, but it's like after the fact. You know, it's it.
0: One thing about REM sleep I could never stomach: all oh, the fucking vampires.
2: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: also, in terms of things that scared us. Uh, one thing I do need to bring up. Hey, now I'm a sleep star. Start. Get the dream on. Go dream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. That's going to be in my head for a week. <laughs> Jake, in talking about things that kind of unnerved us about the movie, you said, Jake, you mentioned something that, that I really kind of felt in, which was one of the things you mentioned that's been a recurring thing for you, which is socks and sleep. <laughs> or, you know, the no socks thing. One that that got me? It's when she leaves the hospital. It, during the sleepwalking sequence at the end. She has no no socks, no shoes, no nothing. And I'm just wriggling in my seat because it keeps cutting away and cutting back. i was like, ah, she's, city streets barefoot. all ah, oh, the woods barefoot. At the final stretch, she suddenly has slippers on. Like Die
1: Hard brutalized you as a kid, didn't it?
0: Yeah, that's the most har- harrowing part of the movie is walking <laughs>
1: through <laughs> a
0: street at night barefoot.
2: <laughs> Don't watch A Quiet Place, man. Oh. it's a dream street though it's the cleanest street you're ever gonna get because it doesn't fucking exist
1: it <laughs> that does that's, that's not an abnormal street it's just Canada
3: <laughs>
1: well I, whether you think it's a horror movie or not it's a phenomenal fucking movie I mean I just i I loved it and I shouldn't have and I can't get past that <laughs> that ending should have killed it for me and it absolutely didn't in this case and i I just that feels like a miracle that's that's that is a a horror movie miracle much like uh ouija origin of evil is a miracle you know that that this one felt like that to me again that's two anthony scott
0: burns movies you've talked to ouija origin of evil
1: well the other one just reminded me of it this one no yeah yeah yeah.
0: (laughs) of all the touchstones i expected (laughs) to come up twice fuck it i'm watching
1: ouija origin of evil tonight (laughs) (laughs) there's always room for mike flanagan oh always always but yeah that's just a just a good film i'm glad we finally did it because i yeah eric mentioned you talked to me i think you recommended it to me or i just randomly watched it or we were talking about it when it came out it
0: definitely came up in horror chat yeah because i was yeah like i said in the discussion it's one of those it's like look it's it's too striking in its execution to ignore agreed and and the same thing i would say to the listener even though we just spoiled the hell out of it obviously but i really think it's if you really want to engage with it, it is one of the movies, again, we talked about before in terms of what's actually going on, where I think the question is far more interesting than the answer. Yeah. And the, the, the goal of it is about you engaging with it. Cause I honestly don't think, I think Anthony Scott Burns probably has some idea of what he thinks everything is, but I think he's too much of a fan of, of Lynch to be like, you know, there's, there's one reading and that's it. Whereas, you know, Lynch has always said about his movies and i I'm not quoting exactly, but Lynch's, you know, when he was asked to have a conversation about movies or a commentary on it, and Lynch would say, no, the movie is the conversation. It's about how you interact with the text. Yeah. And, and that's what it is, in terms of digging into it, in terms of, you know, how to read it, this is a movie that could keep us busy for hours and just do rewatches in terms of how we want to perceive different things. But even beyond that, just the execution of it and the aesthetic It's it's so interesting and it has it's always good on this pod when you get something where it feels like somebody has a voice Mm -hmm. where someone had a vision, got to pull it off. Anthony Scott Burns is very open that that didn't happen to him on the previous movie, Our House. And he thought when that fell through, he said, well, my career's done because I just walked out on a film, which is a big no, no. This was a movie he was hoping to make before he even made that movie. So he finally had the chance to realize it. And yeah, just really striking and really worth a shot, even if it doesn't sound like something that would necessarily be up your alley. It's at least worth trying.
1: Yeah. And I can't wait to see what he does
0: next. Whatever it is, we'll be there. Absolutely. Absolutely looking forward to watching it. In the meantime, thank you for listening to this episode and thanks again to Daniel Krauss for coming on to chat with us. Such a fun movie to talk about. And thank you again for listening. Uh, if you like this episode, if you want to leave us a review wherever you get your pods, that'd be great. Check us out on Twitter. We're at Scary Stuff Pod on Twitter. We're on Instagram at Scary Stuff Podcast. And we have a Letterboxd account, which is also Scary Stuff Podcast. So
1: yeah, check us out. And I think we'll have some coffee out while when this is out, right?
0: We should, yeah. Well our at the time this is out, our coffee from Rootless should be out. So go to rootlesscoffee.com, R O O T L E S S dot com and go to their collaborations page and our coffee should be available there. It's only going to be for a limited time. It's only going to be a month from when it starts being sold, so definitely get them in stock up because yeah, while the <laughs>
2: character Sarah can't wake up, you can stay awake with our coffee. <laughs> I, I meant to do that, it was fit in the coffee plug at some point. but
0: yeah, perfect. And yeah, and sincerely, we, we talked about this when we did the coffee before. It's you want to buy the coffee to support us, great, but sincerely, Rootless is my go to coffee company, and I really like their roasts, so really, sincerely, give them a shot, they're fabulous. So, yeah, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon with uh, what should be episode 52, which I am very much looking forward to. Dear God. Yeah, thanks in, <laughs> thanks in advance for enduring this one, Nick. But <laughs> Jake and I got some stuff we got to talk about when the numbers five and two come up back to back on the
1: podcast. So Yeah, we do.
2: I hate you all.
0: <laughs> I'm so excited for this. So, yeah, please look forward
1: to that next episode. Plus, we called our shot with the Moon Knight. Uh... Intro in the comic adaptions.
0: hmm
1: Oh, maybe I spoiled what it is.
0: <laughs> rubbing hands dear Can't wait. So please look forward to that. In the meantime, this is Eric saying thanks again for listening and signing off.
2: This is Nick saying, I can't tell the difference to my dreams and my podcast life.
0: This is Jacob saying,
1: Hey now, you're a sleep star. Go dream.
2: <laughs> nice.
0: All that glitters just... <laughs>
2: is <laughs> Good night, everybody. (laughs) That's the way Jake looks at it. And I respect that. That is definitely one way to look at it. No, you don't. But it is.